Hear a little bit from God's Word this morning. So, um, for the past two years or so, I've been discipling two students, and we've gone through different sort of materials over the time. Uh, but right now, we're going through a kind of apologetic study, which is talking about the defense of your faith. And so, we're gone through you know different arguments for the existence of God, cosmological arguments, ontological arguments, all these fancy big words that kind of prove to people that it's reasonable to believe in the God that we worship. Um, And in the context of that, we've been talking about how do we talk with people who are atheists, who don't believe in God, or agnostic, or unsure about whether they believe in God. Um, And one of the things that kind of came up um, was this quote that I remembered, and I I think it's by N.T. Wright. I don't honestly know that. I tried to find the source for it. But he was talking with someone who didn't believe in God, who was an atheist, and He said, you know, I don't believe in God. And so N.T. Wright responded, or whoever it was responded and said, "Um, well, which God don't you believe in? And the atheist was kind of taken aback. He wasn't really expecting that sort of question. Um, And so he said something along the lines of, well, I don't believe in a God who would, you know, commit divine child abuse on his son. Or I don't believe a God who would allow evil things to keep happening in the world. Or I don't believe in a God who is angry and vengeful and just wants to take people out or whatever his sort of thing was. And Wright or whoever it was responded and said, well, I don't believe in that God either. And he said, can I tell you about the God that I believe in who was revealed in Jesus Christ? And I think this is a powerful question to ask because more often than not, I think we assume everyone, when they use the word God, believes the exact same thing that we believe about God or means the exact same thing that we mean about God. But the truth is, that's not the case. We could be talking about very different gods and sometimes when we're talking to people who do not believe in God, it's good and helpful for us to say, well, I don't believe in the God that you're describing, but let me tell you about the God who I believe in. So this morning, what I want us to do is to sit with that question a little bit, because maybe for some of us who've been in Christianity for a long time, who've grown up in it like me, we assume that everyone else just uses the exact same language or thinks of the exact same God. But it's really, really important that we understand the God that we believe in, the God that we worship. It's actually very practical. This isn't just a theological exercise for people in some ivory tower. What you believe about God will affect the way that you worship, the way that you interact with people within the church, and the way that you interact with atheists and agnostics. And so I wanna talk a little bit about who God is. And so um, this morning we're continuing our series on John, um, the signs of life and the gospel of John. And this morning the title is The Son of God. We're gonna be in John chapter 10, if you wanna go ahead and turn there, specifically verses 22 through 42. And as you turn through there, I want to ask three questions this morning. Number one, what do you believe about the Father? Number two, what do you believe about God? And number three, what do you believe about the Son of God? And each of those questions are important. So what do you believe about the Father? What do you believe about God? And what do you believe about the Son of God? And so we're going to do that by looking at John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. So... Verse 22, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So um, this is another one of these feasts. John talks about a lot of these feasts that are going on, and if you remember the context in John chapter 10, 
This has been what he's been talking about. He's been talking about the good shepherd, and the reason he's been talking about being a good shepherd, and last time we talked about bad shepherds, is because during this Feast of Dedication, which is what now we would call Hanukkah, it was a remembrance of this time in Israel's history when they allowed Antiochus, this pagan ruler, to come in and cause this um, this desecration of the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the temple, which is not something that you do for people who are good Jews. And so there was these questions about how did the the Jewish leaders allow this pagan king to come in and do something so horrible in the, the temple? And so there's these discussions about what is a good shepherd, a good leader, and what is a bad leader? And so in the same context, Jesus is going to talk a little bit about sheep. He's going to remind us of that conversation that he had, Um, and it's also during winter. It's time when it's cold, and so Jesus is on the colonnade of Solomon, which is facing towards the east, and it's a place where it's a little bit warmer, and they would go and people would teach at the time. So in verse 24, the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, um, the it's interesting, the, the, they gather around him. Some of your versions might say surrounded him. That same Greek word is used later in, in the New Testament of um, Israel when they gathered around Jericho. So they're kind of circling him up, making sure that there's no way that Jesus can get away. And they're gonna trap him with this question. They want to get an answer from him. And their question is this, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So what they're asking is, if you remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's a title. They're asking, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one, the one that we've been waiting and longing for? And if you've been reading John up until now, he's been very careful not to say that he is the Messiah. And part of that is because there's kind of military connotations brought into that. Remember, they're they're realizing that there were bad leaders in the past and they're looking for a Messiah who's gonna come deliver them from the Romans who are oppressing them right now. So Jesus never says, I'm the Messiah outright in a Jewish context. Um, And you'll see he won't say that specifically, but that's what they're asking. Um, But I want you to see something more that they're asking. Um, In verse 24, they start off by saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? Um, Most of your translations will say that. I'm I'm reading from the, the ESV. I looked at almost all the translations say something along those lines. How long will you keep us in suspense? but that's not actually what the Greek says. Um, It's a good translation, it's kind of an idiom, a way for them to communicate that. Another way of translating it is how long are you gonna annoy us? How long are you gonna keep avoiding us? But literally in the Greek, what it says is, how long will you take away our life? How long will you take away our life? And that's a key question for them because Jesus is going to answer that. You'll notice he's gonna talk about life. So they're asking a question, how long, Jesus, are you going to, in a sense, take away our life? And Jesus is gonna respond specifically to that question. So look in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Notice the language of good shepherd coming in here. My sheep hear my voice, verse 27, and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. 
So notice what Jesus is talking about. He catches on to this language of them asking about life. Now they use the, the language of suke, which is the word we get psyche or soul. How are you taking away our life? And he responds by saying, I am going to give eternal life to those who are my sheep. So the word zoe, a different word. He's saying, you're looking for a certain type of life. I'm gonna give you something that's even better, that's greater than that. But what Jesus is doing is communicating something about his relationship to the Father. So this first section we wanna ask, what do you believe about the Father? And notice what Jesus is saying. In verse 25, he's saying, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. What he's been saying consistently in John chapter five and also in John chapter eight is that I'm doing the same works of the Father. And so he's talking to Jews who know what the works of the Father are. And we talked about this in the past. For the Jews, the Father is doing two things. He is creating and he's judging. And so what Jesus is communicating, he's saying, if you know that these are the works of the Father, do you not see me doing similar works? Jesus has been creating. He has been bringing about life. He's been recreating in a sense. And he's talking about these works that he's been doing. And so um, we often think of Jesus' miracles as something that is supernatural, kind of not normal at all. There's a theologian that I think helps, gives a, a, a unique distinction, and his name is Jurgen Moltmann, and in his, in his book, The Way of Jesus Christ, he says this, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. I think he's got a point. What Jesus is actually doing is really being a creator. And you see this in these seven signs that he does. The whole Gospel of John is kind of gathered around these seven signs, and all of these things are creation signs. In fact, if you specifically look, you'll notice this difference between the sort of work of demons and the work of the Father in John chapter nine in Jesus healing a blind man. And that comes up in the verses right before this passage. Um, so uh, Jesus has healed the blind man and look in verse 19 of chapter 10. Right after he gives this uh, conversation about the good shepherd, in verse 19, it says, there was again a division among the Jews because of the words. And many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That's the work of the father. The father is someone who is creating, who is recreating it and making things back to the way they were intended to be when he created the world as it was supposed to be. Demons are the ones who destroy, who steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Jesus just talked about in John chapter 10. So what Jesus is saying is, you see my works? I am actually doing the works of the Father. And so all the Jews believe that the Father was creating and judging. And now he's saying, based upon my works, do you believe as well? And just before, in a couple verses, a couple people say, yeah, this couldn't be a demon. He has to be doing the works of the Father. People are seeing what he's doing. But Jesus makes it even more explicit than that. Um, in verse 29, he says, my Father who has given the sheep to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. I am creating just like God. I am bringing life and recreation just like God. And so what do you believe about God the Father? 
Uh, up to this point, the Jews can agree with him and say, we believe God is a God who is creating. We believe the Father is creating. They, they saw the, themselves as, in a sense, Israel, the Son of God. That's what Exodus 4 talks about. But they get a little hesitant when Jesus says that I and the Father are one. So um, if we're talking about what, does, um, what do we believe about God, one of the places we can look is in the creeds. And so in uh, one of the early creeds is the, um, the Nicene Creed. And the beginning of the Nicene Creed says this, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And the Jews would say, yes, we agree. We believe in this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. He's the one who created and is... Um, is bringing life and is judging. But they stop for a second when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And I want you to see something unique about what Jesus is saying. Because in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And that word for one is the Greek word hen, which you can't tell in our translations, but there's multiple different genders you can have. So you can have a masculine gender or you can have a neuter gender. If this was in a masculine gender, it would communicate that when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, that we are the same person. But because it's in neuter, it means I and the Father are the same thing. So what Jesus is not saying is that I and the Father are the exact same um, person, but we're the same God. This is a Trinitarian language that Jesus is talking about. And you can see the Jews get a little bit frustrated with them because they respond in verse 31 saying, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So they recognize exactly what he's saying. He's claiming to be the same thing as God. He is claiming to be God and they're going to, they're going to kill him because that's what you're supposed to do. So the next question then I want to ask is, what do you believe about God? And this is going to get us into this conversation about this is something that's very important for us to think through. What do we really believe about God? Because what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of God is different than what the Jews are thinking. And it's going to cause them to ultimately reject Jesus. So we need to ask the question of ourselves, what do we believe about God? It's one of my favorite questions to kind of ask somebody. Um, maybe not in this way, but I love to ask the question when I'm, when I'm meeting with someone. What do you think about when you think about God? Or, or how would you describe God? And it's just really fascinating to hear the different ways that people will talk about God. Father is often a word that comes up. There's lots of other ways that people will talk about God. But what people believe about God will really tell you a lot about them and about their Christian walk and the way that they interact with other people. And you'll see this in this passage. So what do you believe about God? Look at Jesus' response. In verse 31, the Jews pick up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I love his response. <laughs> he asks them, hey, you're going to stone me. At least have a reason to stone me. I don't know if they stop stoning him or they're about to. And he gets the question out really quickly or what happens. Um, he's God, so he's able to do stuff. Later on, you'll see he just kind of escapes. But he asked this question and gets them thinking. Jesus is always asking questions to get people thinking and to think through the different false assumptions that they have. In verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you. So it's not because they're gonna deny that he's been doing good works. They can't really. Everyone's saying this is not the work of demons, this is the work of God. But 
they're going to stone him because of what he says. So it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. They're exactly right on what he's saying. He is saying that. In verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, we read this and we're kind of like, what are you saying, Jesus? Are you now saying that there's other gods and you're using the Old Testament to prove that? So whenever somebody quotes something in the New Testament specifically, it's always good to look at what they're quoting and specifically read the whole context of what they're quoting. Because in this time, you, you don't have a whole bunch of paper. It's not like we can just type up things and send out texts and all this stuff. Words are, are kind of important. And so when they, they share a quote, they understand that you're gonna recognize all of everything around it. And so turn with me, keep your finger in John chapter 10, and turn with me to Psalm 82, which is what Jesus is quoting. It's a short psalm, so we'll read it and hopefully help you see the context, why Jesus is bringing this up. Psalm 82. This is a psalm of Asaph. And in verse one, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So that's interesting. He's taking it up, sort of counsel in the midst of the gods. And he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So the way that most Jews and rabbis would have understood this passage is that God's not, the, the psalmist is not talking about other gods as if they're other competing gods against um, Yahweh, the ultimate God, but that these are rulers or judges of Israel who God has sent his word to, but they're actually not ruling really well. And this is very fitting in light of the Feast of Dedication. This is when they're asking questions about what's a good ruler and what's a bad ruler. And so Jesus is bringing up in the history of Israel, there has been some bad rulers who didn't actually listen to the word of God that was sent to them. But the part he quotes, and the part I want to focus on, is verses five through seven, and I'll put it up on the screen for you. Now, verse five, the psalm says, they, these rulers, these quote-unquote gods, have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. And here's what Jesus quotes. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then verse eight says, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all of the nations. So what the psalm is communicating is that these rulers, they don't have the understanding or knowledge. They think that they are sons of the most high and that gives them some privilege, but they're not actually doing what God has called them to do as leaders, and they are likewise going to perish. And if you read it in the context of John, you'll see some similar language in John chapter one. So John chapter one, verses four through five, talk about the word who's coming, and it says, in him the word was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, your translation may say, it didn't overcome, literally means didn't grasp, so didn't understand or comprehend it. So these rulers, 
these Jews who think that God is their father, they're not getting who Jesus is, even when the word is being sent to them. And the same thing is happening in John. The word himself is being sent to them, and they are not recognizing that Jesus is the word made flesh in the present with them. And if you read John chapter one, you'll see all of this language. But look specifically at verse uh, 35. Jesus points this out. If he called them gods, and this is God's word, so he's saying, hey, you believe in the Old Testament, right? You believe in the Psalms. You think this is God's word coming from? And it's talking about gods that are going to perish, that are going to die. The same question of life that Jesus has brought up as well. If you, sorry, I have to turn back the page. If he called them the gods, verse 35, to whom the word of God came, and scripture can't be broken, Do you say of whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? He's saying I am the word very much sent to you, made flesh. And if you believe the Old Testament word that's talking about me, then you need to believe who who I am. But what the Jews are showing is that they're actually in darkness and they don't understand and they don't see just like in Psalm 82 with the rulers. And it's because they don't really understand who God is. They have an idea of who God is, but it's not actually who God is. So what I want to do is um, I want to quickly talk about what does it mean to believe God is Trinity? And I hope you'll stick with me for a little bit. Um, You don't have to take notes. This isn't going to be a class. There's not going to be a test afterwards. But I want to talk about some misconceptions of the Trinity Um, and then talk about what a a sort of orthodox understanding of the Trinity is. And I hope as you listen and kind of work through this, and I'll try to go quickly, you'll see that the Trinity and understanding who God is, that God is three persons in one God, actually communicates and transforms the way that we think about him, the way that we worship, and also the way that we live within the church. And also, I want to show, is also helps you understand how beautiful the gospel is. So, um, there's a couple different ways of thinking about God, and I've got, I think I've got, oh, this is a quote, oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, If you want to read a book on the Trinity, I would really actually recommend this book. This is by Michael Reeves, it's called Delighting in the Trinity. It's about 120 pages, really simple, it's not deep, dense theological stuff, it's not this high language or anything, it's just really practical, talking about delighting in the Trinity, the Um, Subtitle is An Introduction to the Christian Faith. This is a book I would give to someone who's a newer believer, but also is is powerful for um, people who are seasoned believers to see what the Trinity is. And what Michael Reeves says in the introduction is, for what makes Christianity absolutely distinct is the identity of our God. Which God we worship, that is the article of faith that stands before all others. The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God himself. And every aspect of the gospel Creation, revelation, salvation is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God, the triune God. So understanding the Trinity shapes the way we see all of Scripture. Um, So what I want to do is I want to talk about different ways of misunderstanding Scripture. And it's actually fitting that we talk about this this Sunday because this Sunday has historically been Trinity Sunday. It's the Sunday after Pentecost Sunday, which was last week, which is 50 days after Easter. And so this is a time since about the 10th century that the church has talked about the Trinity. So here's a couple misconceptions of the Trinity. You can see from my little graphic, the the crown represents the Father, um, the cross represents the Son, and the dove represents the Spirit. So one 
false heretical way of thinking about the Trinity is that these three are three separate gods. Um, and so this is the kind of heresy of tritheism, or some people would call it henotheism. Um, and Mormons actually believe this, that there are three separate gods. And what they would say is they're all unified in purpose and intent, but they are distinct and specific gods. So not three persons, but three actual gods. This is not what the scripture teaches. This is not what the church has historically taught. Another false way that's kind of similar to that is this idea that the Father is kind of the real God and the Son and the Holy Spirit are in a sense subordinated to um, the Father. Um, and this is the idea of subordination or historically it's been called Arianism. So Arius was someone who believed that the Son was um, created and he was not eternally with the Father. Um, and so this is another way of seeing them possibly as three different gods or some as sort of sub-gods underneath it. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses believe this. And John chapter one actually deals with this. In John one, um, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And in their translation, they put it in and the word was a God. That's actually not a good translation. The, the Greek is definite, it's the God. And the word was the God, but they think there are multiple gods. And so Jesus was this created person who was not eternally present with God. This is another heresy. This is not a, an accurate way of talking about um, the Trinity. Now, another way that often people will think about it is that the Father is one way that God shows up or Jesus is one way that God shows up. So in the Old Testament, you look and you see the Father. In the New Testament, you see more of Jesus or maybe the Holy Spirit. And this is the heresy of modalism or Sibelianism, which is, Sibelius was a, the guy who kind of talked about this initially. Um, and this is what oneness Pentecostals today teach, that God shows up in different modes. Um, and in fact, oftentimes we use illustrations or examples that um, we try to help people see what the Trinity is. And, and one of the ones we often hear, you may have heard this, is that the Trinity is like um, uh, water. So water, when it's room temperature, is water and it's liquid. But when you boil it, it becomes steam, so it's different. Or when you freeze it, it becomes ice. That's modalism. That, that, that's H2O in, in three different forms. But that's not the Trinity. That's not a, a good example of the Trinity. Um, and then one final other way is just to say that we only believe in one God, the Father. Um, and this is sort of the way that uh, Islam and Judaism talk about God. This is non-Trinitarian monotheism. They're so committed to there's only one God that they want to say that there is, uh, anyone who's a Trinitarian is a polytheist or a tritheist or has multiple gods, which is not true. But they like the fact that God is one and they wanna focus on that. Um, now, I'm gonna show you, a, I think, what is a more accurate representation and I wanna just clarify that any illustration, any example that we give of the Trinity is not fully gonna be able to explain it. If you think you found the perfect example, the three-leaf clover, whatever it is, you know, that God's a father and also a son and also a husband, like those are, they're, they're gonna fall apart. The Trinity is not something we're gonna be able to fully comprehend. It's something that's taught in scripture and taught throughout church history. It's something that, tells us who God is, but we're not gonna be able to fully comprehend it. God is way beyond our comprehension. So I'm gonna show you a picture that you've probably seen that's similar. Just recognize it's not gonna be fully in the perfect example. But I think this is probably a better way of understanding um, the Trinity. 
And this is that um, you kind of see that they are all, all persons are distinct. So the Father is not the Spirit, is not the Son. And yet they are all God once together. That God is three persons in uh, one God. And this is what Trinitarian theology means and what it looks like. Um, now, you all ready for a test on this? Anybody, anybody tell me what Sabellianism is? No, I'm just, I'm totally joking. Um, this is important because how we believe or how we think about God changes the way that we worship. It changes the way that we interact with each other. It changes the way that we live and interact with God. So it's really important that we process through this. And so the way the church has generally talked about this is by um, using what are called creeds. And so the Nicene Creed, we started talking about that a little bit ago. Um, it set, starts by saying, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Um, so the, the Jews and the, Islam, or the uh, Muslims would say, we agree with this. But the creed goes on to say, and we also believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. So it's important to recognize that Jesus was not made, he was begotten um, of the same essence as the Father, and through him all things were made. So as the Jews see that the Father is the one who's creating, historically the church and the Bible was taught that, that Jesus is the one through whom things were created. And then the creed goes on to say, um, not only do we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, but also we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. And so you see three persons, one God, and there is a unity among them. The unity among God specifically. So this isn't the perfect example, but the, the um, Father begets the Son eternally, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And this is the way that we talk about it. Now, um, if you look at some, some places, specifically if you look at the, the book of Islam, the Quran, they're going to specifically attack this creed because they think it is polytheistic. So in the Quran, there's a portion that says, say not Trinity, desist. It will be better for you for Allah, the word for God. For Allah is one Allah, glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. So God would never have a son. That's the one God. We can't have any other God involved in this or person involved in that. To him belong all things in the heavens and on earth. So they're using the same language of the Father, but they want to attribute that specifically just to God. And then later in another section, it says, say he, Allah, is one. All is he on whom all depend. And notice they use the exact language of um, the Nicene Creed. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and none is like him. We would say that the Father is not begotten, but he does beget. He begets um, the Son, although the Son is not made. So why in the world am I talking to you all about this? Is it because I think you should love theology as much as I love theology? Yeah, probably there's something about that. But it's because theology is practi practical. And this theology specifically really, really matters. You can see it differentiates us. We can talk to people who are Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses who will say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Father. But they believe something very different about God. And they'll say, if you ask them, do you believe in God? Yes. But they don't mean the same God that we're talking about. And so it's important that we understand the God that we're worshiping. But I want you to see that this is even more practical 
than just that. And I think this is really beautiful when we actually process through and think about this. Um, Because if we think about a God who is a trinity, it will change the way that we understand him. Imagine for a second if God was a God of plurality, if there were multiple gods. What was God doing before creation and how does creation happen? If you read all of these kind of um, ancient Near Eastern creation myths, creation happens out of a battle. There's a fight between all these gods who are trying to show who's top dog and you know, sometimes heads get cut off and that's how the earth is created or it's always a battle for somebody to show who's the best. And they have this need to demonstrate I'm the top dog God when there's a plurality of gods. And they're angry and they're fighting and they wanna win. And that is not the God of the scripture. But think about a God who is a single God, who is a single person God. Why would a single person God create? Because a single person God needs to see people worship him. He has nobody else, no no community, there's no one else to recognize who he is and so he creates maybe out of need, maybe oftentimes in, in, in these Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern um, gods there so that he can have somebody to serve him or somebody to love him or somebody to give him honor and praise and glory. That single person God is a needy God. But what about a Trinitarian God? What is the Trinitarian God doing from all creation, even before creation happened? Now, Some theologians will joke and say, if anybody asks that question, what was God doing before creation? He was making hell for anybody who's dumb enough to ask that question. Um, It's not not exactly the case. But um, it gets to the point, what, what, what was God doing before creation? And Jesus actually tells us in John's gospel. Jesus says of the Father that you love me before the foundation of the world in John 17. John 14 through 17 talks a lot about the Trinity. It's a beautiful passage where he's talking to his disciples. What God was doing from before the beginning of the creation, the Father was loving the Son, the Son was loving the Spirit, the Spirit was loving the Father. There's this community of love because they don't, the God, God doesn't need anybody else to love. He doesn't need creation. And so what that means about creation is that frees us up. That God doesn't need us, right? But he creates out of the abundance of who he is. God is a loving God that is abounding and giving and sharing his life. And he doesn't need creation, but he he creates because he wants to share who he is with other people. And so we have the opportunity to know the life that's found in this eternal triune loving God who abounds into our lives and we don't have to be the one who comes in, but we get to because of the beauty of the Trinity, because of the beauty of who God is. When you start thinking about this, this starts to transform the way that you worship and the way that you interact with God and it transforms other things too. I think about the way that I interact with my wife. If, if I interacted with my wife and I thought, I need her, I would put a weight on her that she couldn't hold. But if I want to be in a relationship with her, all of a sudden, that's a different relationship, right? And so God creates us in the image of God. He creates us to need to be in community, just like God is community. And to love each other, what's the command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second command is love one another as yourself because God has been doing that from the beginning of all creation. 
We are to image and reflect who God is. And think about this too also when you think about kids. Um, Oftentimes, we have, people will have kids because they are trying to save their marriage and they feel like they need their kid, right? And if you focus on your kid and make it all about your kid and needing them, your marriage is gonna fall apart. Rather than focusing on the relationship there, your kids will recognize when they see that they need, you need them in order to kind of have a full marriage. That's why a lot of times when you have empty nesters, there's sometimes that divorces happen because they haven't learned to, to be in that community together. They feel like they need something else. This has all sorts of practical implications in the way that we think about this. God has created us in his image to be in community, so there's no lone ranger single Christians. And we also can't be like these gods that are fighting all the time. We need to be united together. That's what John 14 through 17 is all about. It's what the high priestly prayer in John 17 is about. Unify them as we are unified. As God is unified specifically. So I could go on and keep talking about this, but it's beautiful and it makes us think differently about the way we live, about the way we worship, about where we feel needed, where we feel wanted. And yet God is a God who is abundant and loving and gracious and he invites us into that relationship. And this last part I want you to see is this. This makes us think differently about the gospel. So finally, what do you believe about the Son of God? And I want to just really quickly look at this, looking at verses 35 through 42 in chapter 10. So Jesus says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Or if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But they can't say that. They see that he's doing, he's giving life like the father is giving life. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. (laughs) Now again, the same thing. He's claiming to be one with the father. And so they get frustrated about it. It's really interesting. Notice um, earlier on, he was talking about how nobody's able to snatch any of a sheep from the hands, from the father or from the son. But here, the Jews are trying to, to grasp him and he escapes from their hands. I love what John puts in there. That no one's able to get away from his hand, but he can get away from everybody else's hand because he's God. And then look at verse 40. And he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So what you have in this passage is Jesus is presenting the Jews with an opportunity to believe, to trust in the triune God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And the sad thing is some of the Jews are not going to accept it because it's not the God that they believe in but there are some who end up believing him. And it's interesting, this passage is right to where Jesus is gonna finish his public ministry. In John chapter 11, it's gonna be him going to Lazarus and he's gonna go recognizing he's going to die and he's moving towards the cross. So this is going right to his last week of his life, right after this. this is a key pivotal moment. But there's something else that's going on. If you look back at verse 36, Jesus says, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated, and sent into the world, you are blaspheming. Now that word, consecrated, should make us think back to Hanukkah, because Hanukkah is all about the desecration of the temple. And 
And the Maccabees were trying to re-consecrate the temple. And so what Jesus is saying as they're celebrating this re-consecration of the temple, as he's speaking on the temple, teaching from the temple, is saying, I actually am the real temple. And if you want to re-consecrate the temple, if you want to set it apart, you want to really know who God is, you're going to find it in me. And you have a choice whether you're going to accept me and the God that I reveal in Jesus Christ, or you're going to reject and if you keep going in John, we, we don't have time to go through it all, but look, turn to John chapter 20. Because in the end of John chapter 20, you see the purpose statement of the whole book of John. John chapter 20, verse 30. And I'll put it up here for you. This is the purpose statement. John says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. He did many other works, works of God, bringing life about, bringing recreation, restoring things to the way they were meant to be. He did many other signs, and John lists specifically seven, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now that's a Trinitarian purpose statement. Let me show you. He says, these are written so that you may believe, that you may trust. You may put your full trust and faith in this Trinitarian God that Jesus, the Son, is the Christ, which literally means the anointed one, the one who's anointed by the Spirit. And he is the Son of God, and God is the Father, the Son of God, the Son of the Father, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. This is a Trinitarian purpose statement because it's important that God is Trinity. But notice what he says. The Jews started by asking, why are you taking my life away? Why are you taking away our life? And Jesus is saying, no, I'm actually coming to bring you real, true life. And if you really want to have life, you need to believe in the name of Jesus who is portraying and revealing to you this Trinitarian God. And so this is why the Trinity is really important and helpful for us to see and to recognize in the gospel because God is giving us this opportunity. Jesus is giving us this opportunity to say, do you want to believe in this God? Or do you want to believe in a different God of your own making, a God that is not the true God who's bringing life? And actually knowing God himself is life. This is really, really important. Um, later on in the creed, um, the Athanasian creed, um, which is a later creed right after the Nicene creed, says this, whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold to the orthodox faith. And then later it says, and the orthodox faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity. Um, a later um, 20th century theologian, Vladimir Losky, says this, if we reject the Trinity as the sole ground of all reality and of all thought, we are committed to a road that leads nowhere. We end in an aporia or a despair and folly in the disintegration of our being and spiritual death. Between the Trinity and the hell, there lies no other choice. What he's saying is this, Look, if knowing the triune God who has been loving since the beginning and is creating out of the, the overflow of his love and the overflow of his life and is life himself who speaks things into existence and you don't want to have a relationship with that God, that's eternal death. I have a neighbor 
um, when I was growing up, we used to always have conversations, and he was a clear agnostic, and, or, or maybe even atheistic, and he would always say, you know what, um, it's, it's fun talking to you, Jason, but um, honestly, if I were to really choose between going to heaven or hell, I'd rather go to hell because all the people I like are in hell, and I don't want to go to heaven. Now, he's, he's wrong about that, um, but there's actually something that I think he has right that we don't often think about. The point of going to heaven is heaven is the place where God is. Christianity is not just about going to heaven because heaven is this good place. Christianity is about knowing the God who is life. And so he's right about this, that if you don't actually like God, if you don't love him, if you don't recognize fully who he is, when you get to heaven, you're gonna be disappointed. So it's really important that we have this opportunity right now, brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have to wait until we die to know that he who is eternal life himself. We get to have that relationship. We get to be a part of this loving community right now. Why are we waiting until we die when we can know him right now? We have the opportunity to know him by faith. And yes, we will know him better when we die and we're able to see fully face to face. But right now, we have an opportunity to know him. C.S. Lewis says that for those who are not Christians, this is the closest to heaven we will be if you don't know God. This is the closest opportunity. Every step will be further towards hell. But for those who are Christians, this is the closest to hell we will be. Every step will be closer to knowing the God of heaven. So why would we not start now? So my hope is that this theology isn't dry and drab. This theology makes you want to delight in the Trinity right now. Delight in the God who is overabundant, who is giving, and is giving so much loves us so much that he would come and die so that we might have life. And this is what the rest of John's gospel is going to be communicating. John 11 is gonna prefigure that, but the rest of it, the rest of the signs are pointing to Jesus' death. But Jesus is a God so much like the Father that death can't keep him under. He is bringing about new creation and new life. And so the gospel points to a Trinitarian God who invites us into this life. And we have the opportunity to worship him now, to respond to him. We have the opportunity to delight in him. We have the opportunity to love him. And as we love him more, he transforms us to where we love other people because he is a God who is loving and gracious and sacrifices for the sake of other people coming to know. And so it transforms the way we pray. It transforms the way we live. It transforms the way we worship. It transforms the way we do our, our families, the way we interact with our kids, the way we interact with our spouses, the way we interact with people around us. The Trinity matters. And it's beautiful, and I hope you see that. And I hope it changes your heart in the same way that it's changing my heart. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you sent your son, that we might have life apart from Christ. There would be no life for us. We thank you that you sent the Spirit that we might have the indwelling power and reminder and the sealing of the Holy Spirit that we are adopted as sons of God because of Jesus for the glory of the Father. And so help us to begin to dive into the depths of of who you are. And God, we know we're gonna mess it up. We're not gonna figure it out. We're gonna grow in it. I keep growing in my understanding of the Trinity. But we want to know you more because knowing you is life. 
And we pray that we would get to know you right now, that we wouldn't just start later, we wouldn't be just trying to soar up for something for once we die, but we would begin to know the beauty of the life that's found in the triune God right now. And so we pray this all for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, and for the glory of the Father. Amen.